to the Change Africa podcast. This is where we meet and have thrilling conversations with Africa's brightest minds. We try and dissect um, the issues that surround their, um, their achievements, what they have done, what their life so far, their views on the continent, and how they intend to impact the next generation of African leaders. And today I have none other than Destiny who is a lawyer and now very recently a LLM student at Harvard Law. Um, Destiny has a huge social media following. We're going to talk about that. But first of all, it's just a huge honor to have Destiny on your po- on my podcast because um, he's a young man that is very well revered by a lot of people and we hope to uncover the reason behind that. Um, thank you for joining me on the podcast, Destiny. Yeah, you're welcome, Isaac. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very, very happy and, you know, fascinated by the idea behind the podcast, what it aims to achieve, and the fact that there are a lot of other persons like me who have jumped on this podcast over time to also share insights, perspectives as to their successes, professionally, academically, and otherwise. So it's actually an honor to be here. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you too. So, uh, my fascination with you started when I read a LinkedIn article that you had um, published. And in that LinkedIn article, you were speaking at an event. And if I remember correctly, you were trying to counterbalance the relationship between math and law. Do you remember that article? Yes. So, so for the benefit of the audience who have not read the article, can you kindly um, give us your thought process around? Well, first of all, tell us what the article is about and your thought process around that. Okay. So, uh, the the article was just a summary of an experience I had sometime. I think in January, I went to. In university, I was invited to a university here in Nigeria, Bafemi Awolowo University. I was to speak to some law students over there, basically to tell them about legal practice and the reason behind legal practice. Uh, why lawyers are necessary, why practice is important, what lawyers should do, and all of that stuff. So, as I was explaining to them, I think I, I I came up with some sort of uh, unconventional perspective about why law is necessary. And I told them that a lot of times people don't quite explain the true reasons behind professional endeavors because there is this shaming that goes on with maybe telling the truth about these things to young people. A lot of a lot of things these days are are basically um 
revolving around money. So if you tell a young person the reason you are going to school is not money, it makes no sense. So over time, society and in fact academics in universities, they've learned the art of not telling these things to people because people most likely will not believe them. And I, I mean, even the persons saying these things do not even believe them in themselves. So we have an educational system that has become heavily politicized. And by politicized, I do not mean the conventional idea of politics. I mean the romanticism of truth with other abstract ideas, like material ideas, like money, you know, wealth, empirical success. All of these should not form part of the academia. The reason people go to school is to learn, to, to enrich their insights, to provoke their senses, to improve their perspectives. Whatever they choose to do with that learning is up to them. But the precise reason for learning itself or for going to school itself is simply learning. Now, this was a conversation on a broader scale. If we bring it down to law, I use mathematics because obviously mathematics is something that almost everybody understands, right? To be difficult and abstract. Okay? But personally, I, I, I feel a lot of persons were failed when they were being taught mathematics, you know, because ma the, mathematics is just the sense for patterns. We have different senses. You have a sense of smell. You have a sense for sight, for feeling. We, we are all born with different senses. There are people who have a sense for art. The likes of Niccolo Machiavelli, the likes of Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, you know, Picasso, for instance. They were reputed to have a sense for the art. They could appreciate art. They could appreciate the abstractions behind beauty, right? Now, there, were, there are other people who had, let's say, a sense for music like Mozart, like Beethoven, like Yanni. You can mention a lot of names, okay? Now, these senses are not, they are not unique to a, a, a just a small cross-section of people. We all feel these things. And that's why you can be in California, you hear a Bonaboy song and you relate to it. You may not be, you may not have it. You may not have the sense a hundred percent to appreciate the depth of music, but you can feel it. And it's the same for patterns. If you look at a typical tree with all the branches, with all the leaves, you can see the crisscross, right? To a, a normal person, right? You can appreciate the beauty in how all of those things are so delicately woven to form what you now see as the tree. Because the tree has its trunk, it has its bark, it has its branches, it has leaves. All of these things make up the tree. Now, when you look at these things, they are, you know, you tell yourself, oh, this is, this is beautiful. You may not be able to explain it, but right there at that moment, you, you've been able to utilize your sense for patterns. It's when you see a puzzle, even when you don't know what, what, how to maybe uncover the puzzle or the labyrinth, right? You, you immediately feel the utilization of that sense for patterns. It's there. Mathematics is woven into the reality of human beings. It's, it's part of the metaphysical universe that forms us. It's like love, right? Even you see love being described, uh, sorry, demonstrated by even animals. Sometimes you, you see, watch videos of dogs saving humans. They cannot explain what is going on, but they feel it anyway because it's, it's right there in the universe for everybody to assess. Now, there are persons who have a, a deeper sense for mathematics, right? People who go on to become mathematicians and all of that, right? They, they have a better appreciation. Some of them, it's the way they are 
biologically formulated to have that cognitive ability. But that does not mean it is exclusive to them. And that does not mean there is any child anywhere that cannot understand mathematics because it is part of, it is who you are. You have a sense for patterns, the way you have a sense for pretty much anything else, right? Now, when I, when I, after I had explained that to them, I, I, I tried to make a quite an awkward correlation between law and mathematics. And I told them that when you come into a law class and a lecturer tells you, um, the reason you are here to study law is so that you can get good jobs and make money. That's not true. I understand the practical and functional utility behind that advice because our economy is in shambles. I mean, using Africa as a case study, using Nigeria as a case study, where I was delivering this speech now, I can understand the, the functionality of that advice because we are suffering, right? People in Germany, they don't, they don't need this because education is free even down to PhD level. I recently learned it's the same in Belgium, it's the same in Austria. Like most of my contemporaries here in Harvard, they've been telling me stories and I'm totally amazed. A professor in Germany does not have any reason to tell you that because it's first, it's simply not true because he wouldn't even believe that. That's not the point of education in the first place. And secondly, it has no functional and practical use to tell people that the reason you are coming to school in Germany is to make money because they don't even need money to go to school, you know? <laughs> so basically it's, you have a lot of things that are free. So what exactly do you mean by the point of going to school is to make money? They could make money in other ways without having to go through the rigor of sitting in class for five years and studying. It is simply not true. It's so philosophic, philosophically unstable to teach people that that's the point of education. And that's why when I was delivering the speech, I had to maybe break down my perspective to a level that they would understand. And that's why I used mathematics because mathematics is something that Almost everybody thinks it's abstract, or, or at least people who do not have a deeper sense for patterns think it's abstract. So I told them that right now, as I'm as I'm speaking to you, you know, as we are having this this podcast, there's somewhere in the world, there's someone somewhere in the world, a student who is complaining to his or her teacher. The teacher has probably asked him to spend a substantial portion of his weekend computing a list of integers or mathematical symbols. You know, there are other things the students would, the student would like to do. In fact, there's hardly anything else she would rather not do to avoid having to study mathematics over the weekend. She knows this quite clearly because she's, she spent a substantial portion of, let's say, the previous weekend doing the same thing. And she doesn't see the point. She's complaining to the teacher, why exactly is all of this relevant? When am I even going to use this? And there's a teacher somewhere in the world telling a student, well, I know this seems dull to you, but remember, you don't know what career you are going to choose. You may not see the relevance, but you might go into a field where it will become really important that you know how to, let's say, compute integers or solve mathematics. This answer is not, is not true. It's not, it's hardly even satisfying to the student because it's a lie. And even the teacher knows it's a lie. The number of adults who would ev eventually make use of, let's say, the almighty formula, minus two plus or minus b squared over four ac over two a, Yes, it's such a remote number. You know, the number of persons who eventually turn out to be mathematicians or who incline themselves to mathematically oriented um, professions, it, they, are, they, are, they, are, they are very little. It's not dime a dozen. You understand my point? So the, the lie is never satisfying. What the teacher should be telling the student is that mathematics is not just a sequence of computations to be carried out, you know, you know, with patience or until your stamina runs out. 
Although it might seem that way from what you've been taught in courses called mathematics, right? But the course, the course, mathematics itself had existed before it even became a discipline. Like I mentioned, it's a sense that we all can connect to. Humans began to use symbols and numbers to try to explain that feeling that they have. Even as remote, as old as ancient Rome, as ancient Egypt, they had to formulate mathematical symbols to calculate money, to calculate other things, you know, what they called money at the time. The point is that humans have always felt the sense. All of these things you see as topics, calculus or these, these were, these were just mortal human explanations of a metaphysical reality, right? So mathematics is not just about solving in itself. Like, like, like I told, like I told the students, I told them that mathematics is, is, is basically weight training or calisthenics to footballers. It is what it, it is, it is weight training to uh, mathematicians, the same way weight training is to footballers, right? So let's say you want to, you want to play soccer at a competitive level, you, right? You, you would have to do a lot of boring, repetitive, apparently pointless drills. Professional players, they, they never use those drills. You won't see Messi on the pitch or Ronaldo zigzagging, for instance, right? But when you go to their trainings, you see players using, you know, you see players running through cones, zigzagging, using the ball to hit their stomach. They do a lot of things that are, that are in themselves very pointless. Those things don't seem to even be related to football. It's the football you eventually watch for an hour, 30 minutes on the pitch, right? You never see players doing those things. But when you get to the pitch, you see players using the strength, the speed, the insight and flexibility they've built from those drills week after tedious week. Learning those drills in part it is simply part of, you know, learning soccer. If you want to play soccer for a living or even make, let's say, your university team, you are going to be spending a lot of boring weekends on the practice field. There's no other way around it, right? But the good news is, if the drills are too much for you to take, you can still play for fun, right? Like I said, not everybody would have a natural acuity for, a, for let's say, mathematics or art, you know, or even speaking. Some persons are more verbally facile. They just know how to speak, right? It comes to them. But that does not mean everybody will now be dumb or they can't talk. Everybody can, they have a sense for speaking too. Everybody knows how to speak unless you are biologically, you know, let's say, um, deaf mute, for instance, right? So the fact that some persons know it better does not mean that everybody cannot connect to this reality we are talking about. And it's the same for sports. Let's say you are not, you, you can't move along with the drills. It's fine. You can still play just for fun, right? You can play it with your friends. You can enjoy the thrill of making a slick pass through defenders or scoring from a distance just as much as a pro professional footballer would do. You'll be healthier and hap happier than just sitting at home watching it on the TV. The point is that you tried at all. So mathematics to me is pretty much the same. You may not be aiming for a mathematically oriented career. That's fine. Most people are not. But you can still do math. You probably are already even doing mathematics, even if you don't call it that. Mathematics is woven into the way that we reason. It makes you better at things. It is the, it is the science of not being wrong because that's our sense for patterns. It's like wearing a pair of x-rays that reveal hidden structures underneath the messy and chaotic surface of the world. You know, that's, that's basically what mathematics is. And that's why mathematics is taught in schools or rather that was the foundational 
perspective of those that came up with the course to teach people how to understand patterns, logic, how to develop their sense for patterns. It was never about getting a mathematically oriented job. That's, that's just a consequence of studying it to a certain professional level. It's also the same for law. The point of all of this explanation is, as I told the students, is that when you study law, you don't study law to get a job. You study law to know how to reason. There is a way that lawyers think, and that's something you learn at the law school. Lawyers are taught to question every and anything. That is precisely what law is about. It is learning to develop a sense of curiosity and investigation, right? It's learning to aggregate facts, coming up with a conclusion that is logical, that is reasonable, even if it's not agreeable to every person to whom the opinion is expressed. And, and, and when you, when you work with this philosophy, you study law better, right? You study law knowing that what you take home at the end of the day is learning how to think. Whatever you do with that, it's your, it's, it's up to you. There are lawyers who are not interested in pursuing the academia. They are not interested in going to the courts. They can simply be owners of businesses. And what they've learned from being in a law classroom is always going to help them because they will be able to think effectively. If they may even decide to leave business or entrepreneurship or any professional endeavor. They could decide to be chaplains. They could decide to be pastors. It is still going to be relevant because what you learned is, it is, it is woven into the way you now think. And thinking is something that pervades every single area, every substrata of your life. And that's precisely what I explained to them. I mean, a number of persons probably will not disagree because they are overwhelmed by the functionality of making money. And that's fine. But, it, it, I mean, I, I just feel like it's high time people began to tell, you know, tell themselves the truth about things. I think that we are more likely to, to have stronger systems if people can simply be courageous enough to explain to learners why the learning process is important and what it eventually means to them in the course of their careers or in the course of whatever whatever prof endeavor they choose to follow, whether professional or otherwise. So yeah, basically that was that was um, what I was explaining to the students at the time. <laughs> that that is a very long winding but very interesting um, response. It seems to me that in summary your advice and you know very recently i realized a, a few hours before this call you had posted on twitter a response to a parent it seems to me i guess in summary that you would say learning or education itself should be an orientation towards being curious around the natural environment and adventuring to pursue the uncovering right it's just enabling yourself towards the curiosity of the world and the path that it may take you or not exactly exactly you you've summed it up perfectly the point of education would should and would always be about orienting people towards questioning towards curiosity about their environment about you know people about concepts about systems, political systems, academic systems, professional systems, just name them. It's about learning, you know, and also having the curiosity to learn more. 
all of which ultimately develops the way that you think and think effectively. That's 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 for me is the summary. I, I you know I agree with you perfectly. I think that it also shows how much passionate you are about this subject. You know, usually when you ask someone a question and they go on and on about it, depending on their intonation and how much depth they are speaking, you know that you've thought about this. So clearly you are very passionate about this subject. Um, I have a lot of questions to ask you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, fine. I'll, I'll, um, let's, I'll, try, let's, to keep, let's talk I'll about, try to keep the other ones a bit moderate so I don't spend <laughs> yes. too much time. No, no, no problem, no problem. Sure. Um, this, this is a long-form podcast. The people that listen to us are coming here for the depth of answers. So okay. uh, we've had podcasts that are more than an hour, and I feel like our audience understand that. Um, to your question, okay. to your answering of the question by the woman that you talked about yes. who reached out to you, Yeah. You said one of the key things that people should have is mentorship. Yeah. And I've always advocated, right? So if you can see how education has transformed over the years, right? Yeah. Um, let's take it to very early beginnings of how we know knowledge existed, right? Yeah. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. What was really formulative in the educational experience, foundation in the educational experience was the mentorship yeah. more than the knowledge. Because it was one person who was under the tutelage of another basically trying to learn from them as their master, but also in learning from them, try to have a healthy challenge of the pre-known um, foundation that they know so that they can pave their own way. Why has that changed? Why did that ever change? Why did education never become grounded, um, grounded in that? Because I feel like that is why it made those people so great, that they had the mentoring dedicated mentoring of somebody like that. Alexander the Great, yeah. all of them, uh, under the tutelage of somebody. Why do you think that changed? And, and, and for you, how important is that mentoring in, um, in creating human beings that are connected in the, to the world and concerned and brilliant and in tune and aware? Hmm. That's, that's a very interesting question. Why, why do I think that changed? I, I think it changed because I think it goes back to what I was saying initially. I think the educational system has become heavily politicized. Right? It has been infused with too many things that are, that are, that basically take out the substance of what education should really be about. Okay? Things that are, you know, like I mentioned, materialistic and, you know, just basically other stuff. Like you mentioned correctly, right? The very foundation of education that we now know has always been based on a sense of mentorship. Okay? So, even if you had, even in the more contemporary eras from like the 20th century, the likes of Einstein, it was pretty much the same. There was always someone to aspire to. You know, if you talk, Elon Musk will tell you, for instance, that he's very much in tune with the philosophies, the scientific discoveries and philosophies of Einstein. He believes in the God of Baruch Spinoza, for instance. There is always some connection with someone who served as an idol for them to explore their own potentials. Einstein would tell you about Archimedes. <laughs> so it was, there was always that connection. It's just the way Plato would tell you about Socrates. And here in Harvard, one of the things, one of the most, uh, in, uh, intriguing things I've discovered here in Harvard is all the teachings, or most of the teachings rather, not all, all, most of the teachings, most of the professors employ what we call here the Socratic method. So what that means is you sit down, right? You are questioned. The, the, the professor is not just a teacher, he guides. The duty of the professor is to mentor you. So you will do more of the exploring while they will simply guide you towards the truth that they have explored 
you know so when you get to their own perspective you can choose to agree or disagree which is exactly how and which you, you which is exactly how education should be structured it's not about it's not about yes or no life is much more complicated than that it's about guiding people towards you know exploring the depths of their own potentials you know and i was really grateful when i learned that th that was the structure of our classes and the professors that have come to us that's how they formulate their classes it was truly truly impressive and it explains why institutions like harvard like oxford like cambridge they are still able to maintain centuries upon centuries of true brilliance in academic you know uh, pursuits and 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 I, I think where we lost it in africa is the overwhelming politicization of the academia i'm not saying that it's, it's not justified because all problems have ripple effects if you live in a corrupt country it's only a matter of time it will get to the educational sector as it has got into every other sector right so one problem leads to the other and that's why we are here but to answer your question i think that one what, what we can do to revive that mentorship is to have more persons like me people who are passionate about talking people who are passionate not just about education as a concept but passionate about speaking to people about the usefulness of these things we do not have to sit in a, we do not have you know to have college degrees or professors or titles you know to be actual professors there i i use the word professors here in the way chimamada ngozia adichie said that we should all be feminists she does not mean that you should wear the tag she means that you should demonstrate the ethos behind the idea right the idea of the idea of education is passing on knowledge causing inquiry and curiosity instigating the mental uh, the or instigating or provoking the mental instincts of others so that they can utilize their own you know potentials or acumen right and you can do that from a small place you know i know the number of persons i have been fortunate to reach out to just by talking about these things as passionate as i'm talking about them right now you know, I know the number of persons who reach out to me and say, how can I do this, this, this? And with just these little pieces of advice, I see them making improvements in their own, you know, in their own pursuits. So I think one of the ways we can re-engineer or recalibrate this system is to basically start from the scratch. And by from the scratch, I mean people like us who have this idea should put it out there. Because the truth is, people cannot do what they, what they are not aware of. People cannot be smart about what they do not know. People cannot achieve things that they cannot imagine. It's simply the way the world works. If you want the system to change, those who are characterized by the, by the correct precepts or the right, the right learnings should go out there and put it in any way that they can. Because otherwise, you cannot change the system. The system is made up by people who either know or do not know. And the result depends on whether they know or do not know. If they know, the result will be positive. If they don't know, the result will be negative, just in the way that we have it right now in, Af in many places in Africa. So those of us who know, who have been fortunate to gain all the knowledge, all the enlightenment, all the awareness, we should go out there. If it's social media, use your social media. Teach people what is true and what is correct about education. And also tell them that it is not a fruitless endeavor. You know, psychologically it's not. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination there is no scenario where you know learning or education in uh, as a whole is a fruitless endeavor is is the easiest way to ensure the betterment of society and why is that because 
if you look at Nigeria, for instance, or Ghana, or Kenya, or many of the African countries, one of the easiest problems you spot out is the problem of bad leadership. Now, the, the leaders, the leaders are the people. The leaders are part of the people. Leaders are just people. Leaders are just a cross section of the people who are more popular. <laughs> that's just what, that's just who leaders are. So, if you say bad leadership is the problem, it means there is another problem, and the problem is the people, the mindset of the people. Because the people make the leaders. Leaders don't just fall from the sky. You understand? So the, the question then is, how do you change a people's mindset? And the answer is education. It has been the answer 500 years ago. It is still the answer today. And that is why you can never mention any developed society. None. Not one first world country can you mention that does not have a standard educational system. It is simply not possible. Because to change... Or let me not use the word change now. To engineer a people's mindset towards collective good, they have to be taught. They have to be exposed to the minds of very enlightened people. They have to be exposed to deep hidden truths in books, in, you know, in wherever media you can find them. If you do not expose the mind of people, you cannot have people who all reason in a manner that suits the collective good. You would have people who are extremes, you know, like Nigeria now. You have those who are educated. You have those who are extremely uneducated. In fact, a far margin of those who are extremely uneducated. And because of this extreme disparity in the classes of people in that society, they cannot have a coercive mindset. And if you do not have a coercive mindset, you are likely to breed bad leaders. And if you have bad leaders, you have a bad economy. The problem begins to metastasize from one to the other. And that's why I always say, those of us who have the knowledge, who have the insight, we can begin very little. It's, it's a difficult task and it's going to take a lot of time. But if people can passionately use their enlightenment, deploy their initiatives to train the younger generation in the right manner, we'll be able to recalibrate the entire educational system into a system that values nothing but empirical truth. Yeah, that's, that, that would be my answer to that question. Um, you'll end at truth, and I have a lot of questions, but I will want to tackle the one on truth now. Yeah. Because you have, for now, explored the idea of truth for a very long time, even in every, almost in every um, submission you make. What does truth yeah. mean to you? Okay. Um, do I answer this question in general or within the context of um, the academia? Which, which no, I think you should answer it in general. I think you should answer it in general. I mean, what does the idea of truth actually in the world mean to you? Okay, well, to, to start with, I wouldn't say that for all people and across all settings and across all nations, there is one universal truth. It's, it's, an, ambitious, it's an ambitious statement to make because it cannot be proven, right? So, but, but, but when I use the word truth, I, I believe that even where we cannot all agree, there are some things that are truer than others. For instance, I, I, I'll give you a typical example. There are things that, that have been able to impact the world as a whole. Every single uni, uni, human being in the world. And if you trace those things, they contain certain fundamental ideals i wouldn't call them tr fundamental truths now because i don't want to keep complicating the definition but they contain they contain certain fundamental ideals 
that 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 is responsible for that level of impact i'll i'll give very practical examples but let me let me explain further so what i mean is if you look at the entire uh, behavior of humans in general you may say you may, you may say that we are relative right you know and that would be true because we are all wired very differently but at the same time there must be certain things that make us all humans otherwise there will be no need for all of us to be humans you know th th those things would then be the differences between humans and let's say monkeys or dogs it means that th there are certain things that unify our experiences right collectively and those things are what i call fundamental truths a typical example would be love there is there is i have you you would hardly find any society right that does not experience it in the way that you have experienced it the way I, I knew the way I knew love to be in Nigeria is the same way I've seen people demonstrated here in the US. And people who have never been to Nigeria, Nigerians who have never been to the US. The question then would be, why do we feel this thing in the same way? Right? Why why does this generally apply to pretty much all of us if it is not true? Kindness, for instance. Even even the, the worst set of people understand an action that is kind. People, if you were walking on the street right now and a baby, a toddler walked onto the road, a car was coming, right? A car is about to hit the baby. You would see that the instinctive biological reaction of almost every single person standing close to that baby is to save the baby. And you wonder why. What, why, what, what did all of them feel that made them react in that manner? Why did they want to save the baby? At that point, it doesn't matter their religious differences. Even an atheist, that would be the most predominant reaction at that point in time to save the baby. So the, the, the question then would be, where is that feeling coming from? It's the feeling of love, it's humaneness, it's everywhere. You know? So love, love, love in itself for me, it's, it's a fundamental truth. It's, it's, it's a truth that lays the precondition for several other truths. And that's, that's what makes it truth. I don't know if this is too, um, I don't know if this will be too philosophical. I think I'm touching areas that I may need a lot, a, a lot of time to, a lot of time to really, really explore and extract. Another, another. I think, I think, I think that kind of density is exactly right. So don't, don't worry about that. Okay. Okay. I, I, another example would be, um, would be the truth that is responsible for the creativity we see in the world today. Just think about think about the world a thousand years ago and now. What has been responsible for the progression of humans is creativity and innovation. Fifty years ago, nobody would imagine that we could be having this conversation. With you in Ghana, I'm here in Nigeria, we are speaking, recording ourselves in real time. This was impossible. You know? But over time, people have developed, we've developed the entirety of mankind with creativity and innovation. So the, then, what is responsible? What is it that the people who were responsible for driving all of this had? And what makes it true? One of the things is, one of, one of, the, one of the things I consider most fundamental, you know, to the human race in general, is the intellect. And that's why I'm always passionate about talking about the gift of the intellect. And it's a good thing that we all have it. Probably have it in different dimensions, we have it reacting or oriented towards different things, but the fact is that we all have it and we can all use it. And when you don't use it, it's, pre it's probably the most 
nihilistic and selfish thing to do on earth to just live and exhaust and consume without trying to utilize your own potential and i'm talking about intellectual potential right now you know it, it's it's fundamental to me because it is it is evident in virtually every single endeavor you can see that has been able to progress mankind from one evolution to the other something that fundamental has to be true and that's why i think even across all religious backgrounds you would find that the the ideals the the religious ideals that people serve or people believe in there was always a correlation between them and their intellect you if if, if you are a christian you will see that jesus was educated you know he was sitting among scholars and learning why was that even necessary to be part of the bible for instance it's the same for islam it's the same for buddha right if you check through you would see that even religious doctrines support the idea of building the intellect why was it necessary for the bible to mention that jesus had to do this that jesus had to learn under his father as a carpenter that jesus had to go to the temple and sit amongst scholars so you, you would find that even even religion recognizes that with the very gift of our intellect we can we can transform and advance society and it is good for us to transform and advance society because otherwise the the the, the alternative is, is simply pointless we'll do, we'll basically just die off and leave the earth and and that's that's obviously no good so i believe that the gift of the intellect you know and the fact that it will always be relevant to every society. It's a fundamental truth. I, I, I do not really see how anybody may be able to completely disagree with that statement, you know, and have proof of such disagreement because the, 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 the only, the evidence that exists as we speak, they are, they are overwhelming in favor of the statement in itself. Think about Einstein. Think about Steve Jobs. Think about the people that have been able to come up with, you know, ideas with, with innovations that truly transform the earth i'm not even talking about little transformation i'm talking about a complete overhaul it was the gift of the intellect and i think that we all have that gift and that we should utilize the gift not that we should only have it but that we should also utilize it because the gift of the intellect you know and it's the capacity for its transformation is a fundamental truth in itself so maybe the question of truth for me it's it's a very broad it's a very broad uh, conversation Sometimes I don't, if I, if, if I don't stop myself right now, I'll, I'll keep giving instances, different types of truths that I believe in. And I, <laughs> I think that would be too much for the purpose of this conversation because these are, these are issues that I have explored for a very, very long time. So I could go on and on and on. But yeah, so I, I believe those, those two for. Um, you spoke about resilience once as almost being a gift. You talk about the gift of the intellect, right? And you also, um, position resilience as that. In my life experience, I think that that's one of the most important life skills that you can learn. Can you expand on that? Oh, yes. Um, about resilience. So, <clears throat> I think <clears throat> I have, first uh, of Which is interestingly links to, 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 to the story very well that you told about Camus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, resilience for me, I think... I, some, sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to have this unpopular opinion that there are people who have been destined to be great. I hate to say it. Trust me. I hate it. So, <laughs> I hate it so much. I hate it so oh, much God, because I, like this <laughs> I hate it so much because 
I believe that <clears throat> truly, really and truly, everybody has a chance at greatness. But sometimes yeah. I see the behavior of people and I can't help but be tempted to believe that there are probably those cutouts <laughs> for greatness. I can't help it. I hate it, but I can't help it. And, and I have studied this so much, so much that I have seen a pattern with very many great people. One is, one of which is that they almost come prepackaged with resilience. It kills me every time because it is the same resilience ordinary people who are not supposedly destined need to be great. But why is it that those who seem to know that they will be great also have the resilience to pursue it? It kills me every time, right? It's an unpopular opinion. Yes, so, so because because yeah, per yeah. perhaps I, I'm beyond <laughs> knowledge, and I'm not sorry to cut it, beyond knowledge and skill, which can be learned. Resilience yes. is more difficult to learn, and those people have it. Yes. It, it is, it is absolutely more difficult to learn. It, it is, it is the, the way they, the, some persons are connected to either their, their passions or connected to certain goals is unbelievable. I have, I have, I've started reading this book by Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant, or sorry, yes, it was written, yes. it was written in honor of Kobe Bryant, right? Fantastic. Like, I was amazed. I was so amazed. Have you watched the last dance? Have yes, you watched I, the last yes, dance? Yes, I've watched the last dance by Michael, Michael Jordan. You know? Yes. I, 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 in fact, my wallpaper has Michael Jordan there. I'm a very big fan of Michael Jordan. Uh, I've watched series of videos of Michael Jordan. And I can't, and the fact that even from being a kid, he had this crazy idea of how great he was going to be. He kills me every time. If, how do you know and then have the resilience to pursue it? It's almost a package. That God just gives to some people, let them run around, run along with it. When Messi was 12, he said it, it, it was in an interview when he was just 12 years old at the Barcelona team. He mentioned something that my name is Lionel Messi and I'm going to be, I can't remember how exactly he said it. He was basically telling people to watch out for him. Like, how do you have so much clarity on the amount of greatness that you have? And people around him, they say that Messi has this almost maniacal obsession with, with the, with the ball. He always wants to play. You know, he, he, Thierry Henry was saying something that when he was in Barcelona, uh, at, the, at, at the football training like this, Messi would go to the goalkeeper and say, give me the ball. And then he would just start dribbling everybody. He, the fact, the, the, the amount of effort that he puts into becoming great is almost as though it's not something they could have learned. It, it's either you have it or you don't have it. And, and that's why I say, I, yeah, and, I, and that's why I say I really hate to say it because <laughs> I want to believe that everybody has a chance at it. But trust me, some people cannot just help themselves. They can't, like, there is nothing you are going to say. They can't help themselves. And I, I wrote something on, my, um, on Twitter the other day that I do not even think that people who are not already cut out to be great can be inspired. You cannot inspire people. It is people who are inspired. There's a, there's a difference. And the people who are inspired are people who were already cut out to do certain things. Whenever you say something, it's almost like you are reminding them. You are not depositing something new. It's a trigger to what is already embedded in them. They respond to inspiration because they were the ones cut out to do certain things. It's a very, very crazy thing that I have spent a considerable amount of the last year trying to really, really understand. There are people, there are, there are some persons I've spoken with. They'll tell me, oh, I'm so motivated. They don't do anything about it. Nothing. They, whatever it is I tell them, they are never going to pursue it. They are never going to do it. They get so lazy. They can't help themselves. And there are some other people. I tell, th I tell them stuff 
even way less than I told the other people on the other on the other divide. And they do it. And then I realized something interesting about this other set of people, the people who do. I realized that even if I did not tell them, they would have done it anyway. And it's such a crazy thing to, to, to realize. So I believe that, I believe that resilience, right? I believe a large part of what makes people resilient is who they are. It's in their personality. It's, is is something embedded. It's a layer of them, you know? They do not see the, they do not see the barriers that others see. Maybe they see them, but not in the same way. Not, not, they do not give them the same regard to the same degree. So they are able to commit themselves to, to, you know, to whatever it is that they want to commit themselves to. And you cannot mention one person ever, a, a truly remarkable individual who did great things that did not have this attribute. I cannot even think of one anywhere in any discipline whatsoever. It's just not possible. And then people, people say, oh, well, maybe if I am able to build this resilience, right? I, I can be this person, this person, this person. Some of them go on to build or some of them believe that they build the resilience. But usually I find out that the person who claims to have built resilience from the scratch was always someone who had it anyway. He wasn't even building something that wasn't already there. Because when you look at other areas of their life, you see patterns, you know, of some very consistent efforts in other things. They probably just decided to pursue something different. And then they thought that they built some special resilience for this thing that is different. Whereas it was just them transferring something that they had committed to other things into this line of endeavor and then they succeed. So I, I, I really like to believe that. A large part of this thing called resilience is embedded in people. It's in their personality. You know, it's just who they are. They, they can be subdued by the usual passions, you know, that every other human being experiences because we are all human. Sometimes they can get lazy. They can get distracted. But you will see the difference in the way that they commit to things when they choose to commit to those things. And it, it, it's, it's fascinating to, it's fascinating to observe really. Sometimes, you know, Okay, you know, there are, there are things that I have done that I cannot even explain myself. I was telling a friend the other day that one time I had a class last year with about over 300 students in Nigeria. We had, you know, it was a class on corporate and commercial law. So the way the class was formulated was when I, when I'm done teaching, I will set, I'll give them scenarios. They will, they will work out those scenarios and then send me their, their, their work. I will, review it, send back their feedback. I was telling a friend that in two nights, I read four, over 400 emails, responded to every person individually, read all of the assignments and provided my feedback. The person just couldn't believe how I did it. And you know what's funny? I did not even see it as anything. It didn't even, it wasn't some extraordinary thing to me. You know, with the idea of the, can the kind of mental capacity that I have, the capacity for resilience that I have, that was nothing, you know. But what? But to some other people, it, it's just crazy. It's unbelievable. They can't even understand. Impossible. It. Exactly. It, it, it's, it's almost impossible how I did it for a lot of other people. And, and it wasn't. Ju- it, it didn't just start now. I can tell you that far back 2013, when I was teaching um, English in Jam and YX centers for different, you know, for different students. I, I, I cannot forget the year 2012. There was something I did that year which I believe changed the course of my life. To date, I always remember that year. 
I was about to take my 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 work exams. My father told me that, you know, if, if I don't make any papers, it, it, it may be difficult for me to take the next year because there was simply no money, you know. And I I could not just imagine myself not making any of the papers, but I understood where it was coming from. I had always taken first position from, I think, from primary to down to secondary school level. My 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 very last session as a student, right? So I did want to have to take the, the that. WIAC exams and now have a problem. And my father was saying it because my school was, it, it was a mess. We didn't have teachers. I was even my, my, the government teacher of my class as a student. It was that bad. You know? So what I did that year, the whole of 2012, there was no one night where I slept at home. If my younger brother or my elder sister, if they were here, they would tell you the same thing. At some point, my sister joined me. My younger brother joined me eventually. I would go to an uncompleted building close to my house. That was the lecture center where we were teaching. So when I teach there, when, where I was teaching, when I teach in the afternoon or during the day, at night, my friends and I would take our lamps and our books. We'll go to that place and study the whole night. I did not watch TV for an entire year. But you know, the, 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 the funny thing is that I derived some perverse pleasure doing this. To some persons, it is simply unbelievable. It's, un, it's just forget it, it's unimaginable. There, there's no scenario where they can exact that much, that amount of effort into anything. That was where I truly studied the English language before I started teaching. I taught the English language even to persons writing exams that I wasn't even qualified to write. And whenever I teach English, I would go home, I will set 200 to 300 questions from, I will develop questions from my head, 200 to 300. Every Friday, I will tell the students to pay a very small amount of money. I will print the questions and give it to them, sit down with them for two hours. They will take the test. I will mark every single person's uh, um, work, you know, and I will provide my answers and I would explain the answers. It was an absolute, it was an absolutely draining exercise, but never for once. Did I consider it that journey? It just came to me. It was just something that I had the capacity to do. And I, and these skills, over time, they became very useful. The ability to take on something and see it to the end. There are so many times in my life where these things have manifested in different ways. You know, when I was in university, it manifested so much. I would, I, I would be the one to go to lecture centers to teach. I would be the one to play football. I was in my school's football, my, uh, my faculty's football team. I would play football. I would do this. I would do that. I had time to still study. I, I was able to develop the, the, a proportionate amount of resilience for every single endeavor I was interested in. I would travel to different universities for more and more competitions. I would come back. I would ex my exams. I was able to take on so much because I had the mental resilience to see every single one of them to the end. So when I look at my life, you know, and all of its secret colors, I'm tempted to believe that, you know, it's just a thing that I have. It's not, I, I don't think I could have learned resilience. I don't even know what that means. How do you even learn resilience? It just feels like something that, that has been there. And I have seen the same thing replicate itself with people a lot of persons that I admire, that I look up to, friends, colleagues, you know, mentors, who have been able to achieve significant things in their lives. And I see how these things come to them as a matter of course. It's something that is just with them as people, not something that they manufactured or picked somewhere. I can understand and I can agree that there are 
endeavors you take on in life that would naturally shape you or at least force you to have some level of resilience maybe not an extraordinary level of it but some level for instance when you take on a job a, a very demanding job you may hate it at first but if you keep on doing it it will, it will basically formulate or orient your mind to get used to it at some point and to some degree it might not be to an extraordinary degree but to some degree so i can i can appreciate that to that extent one could say resilience can be learned but i'm talking about those insane levels of resilience you know that are that are that have been manifested by persons who have had some very extraordinary achievements over their lives and trust me i don't even think it's something you can learn you it's just something that sits right there under the substratum that forms your personality um last thing that we talk about is on the subject of thinking and reading which is also something that you propose to again that young person but before we do that i mean we've not and 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 this might be very i guess unusual for people who are listening to the podcast because in fact we've not had a conversation about your life and the fact that you had to go through a very tumultuous journey before you have harvard right now the fact that you have been the best at almost everything that you have done including yeah. 18 nigeria law school exams becoming the best at it going to one of the best law firms in going to work on one of the best law firms in nigeria etc etc because i do not want again for me i think that i people will benefit more from your insights and your process than just from the telling of the story um which has again maybe for you become too mundane even now you know because a lot of people are just excited about it. <laughs> um, so let, let's talk about um, reading, right? And the fact that you came from... I mean, I share a lot of things. You don't know a lot about me, but maybe after this official podcast, we talk about it. I share a lot of, of things okay. with you, and I came from a horrible family too. And if I will be honest with myself, while I tell a lot of people to read, I do not think I have read enough, if I will be honest to myself. And I want to ask your perspective around that. I have read a lot, mm -hmm. but I don't think I have read enough. And I say this because, especially now, when I read most books, they become boring to me. If they are not yeah. insightful in creating a different paradigm of perspective, because I maybe think, and maybe this is me being... Um, too prideful, but I am able to read a book, for example, and say, not just predict the conclusion, but understand the insight of what the person wants to get to. And I like, well, okay, I get the point of this book and I don't want to do it again. But there was a point in my life where I was very obsessively reading, although again, still, I don't think I've read it now. How does that translate to your personal experience? But more importantly, as being from some, a, a space where you didn't have the resources to read. And again, I am bringing my personal experiences because for most of those people they didn't have they didn't have a library in, in the house where they were reading thousand books like most people who came from more um, privileged families did so how did you manage then to learn and did you actually do you believe that you have read that much to influence your thought process or again it came to you well um again very your questions are very brilliant and thought-provoking I, I, I worry that if I wasn't, if I hadn't maybe learned enough at this point in my life, I would be, I would find it very difficult to answer your questions on this podcast. I'm 
very grateful so far for the process. <laughs> I must confess, yeah. Very funny. <laughs> because yeah, these are these are these are these are questions that take you back and take you even forward. That makes it very thought provoking. So you have a good point when you say given these strange circumstances of our upbringing, we couldn't have even be exposed to so much to study. And, and, and that's true to a very large extent. I yes, think because me, I asked that question also, I'm sorry. I asked that yeah, question yeah. also very because people are obsessed with how did you do that, right? Like, oh, how did you do it? Yeah, people are obsessed with that. Yeah, so... Well, without trying to bust the bubble of a lot of people, I, I would say there are there are quite a number of things that I do that I, I would have no material explanations. I cannot pin it to something that I have read or something that I saw. To be very very honest, I remember my application to Harvard. The very first line of my personal statement, I referred to myself as Sherlock Holmes. I, <laughs> it was a very audacious statement. But yes, that's what I did. I said I I, I, exactly. I, I described myself as Sherlock Holmes with a, with a capacity to use a unique sense of clarity and insight to improve social conditions. That was exactly how I said it. So the the point the point I'm making here is even if at the risk of busting the bubbles of a lot of people who probably think I might have some empirical explanation to certain things I may have done, I tell you I have no explanation. You can say it is God's grace, which I, I would never deny. I give all the glory to God, but that does not solve that does not provide any explanation anyway. <laughs> answer that question exactly. <laughs> it doesn't answer the question. So there is a, a large chunk of it is just what it is. Sometimes I write certain things and I marvel at what I write. I'm like, how did you even think of this sentence? I can't explain how. I can't pin it to anything, anything precisely, right? The sometimes I come up with initiatives that I don't know how I came up with those initiatives. There were times where I wrote exams and I just came up with one brilliant initiative on how I would answer the question. An initiative I was so sure a lot of persons did not have as they were writing the exam. And it would come out, I would just come out tops, you know. So I can't explain those things. I don't know. I'm in the hall with everybody and the question comes and it just pops into my head. You know what? Take this approach instead of this approach. I can't explain these things to everybody. Sometimes I even think that they are writing the same thing and it comes and it turns out they did not even think about it. I'm like, why didn't you even think about this? Why did I think about it? So, yeah, the large part of it is that. But another part of it would be the intensity of my earliest readings. That's why I advised that woman and I said that your, your children or your child, you know, needs to study. I did not study a lot of things when I was young. We did not have that luxury to buy a lot of books and even if we did i lived in an environment where it, that was rough rough kids don't just they, they they can't even afford to be nerds because you'll be bullied heavily i, I wasn't sitting uh, sitting across the table every day just studying i wasn't locked up in my room i wouldn't i didn't grow up in any of those kind of circumstances if anybody could even imagine it i was basically a street boy wake, wake up go to school come back in the evening play f- street football so I don't, I don't think I had the luxury to have studied so many, but the ones that I studied, I did so intensely. And I think that it is the intensity that triggered a certain level of clarity, which now, which now by itself comes up with perspectives that I cannot explain. You know, the perspectives are just there. Maybe you just need a trigger. 
you know, and some books do well to trigger some parts of you that were previously unarticulated. They were dead, they were just unarticulated, right? So the clarity that happens on those parts of yourself can can be traced to certain books because I was very big on fiction. Achebe was the favorite at some point. I read his books. I love the way that he used words. SMR car, my father's car. Uh, uh, just a number of books like that that I read. Butchie Mecheta, uh, Purple is Biscuits, Chimamanda. They were very helpful, no doubt, because they sort of like they sort of like improved my mental model, which is like I mentioned in my response to the other lady, the way that children basically see the world, the way they are able to aggregate the information that comes to them and illuminate those information by using them in, in, in practical terms. So, yeah, but reading generally is very, very helpful to the development of your consciousness. It improves your imagination. Your imagination and your imagination is strongly connected to how effectively you think, how imaginative you are, improves your creativity. There's just a lot of benefits attached to it. But I always save that spot for the part of me I know cannot be explained by some natural means or by some natural methods or approaches or you know any of these things there's there's just that part which i've over time come to acknowledge because i've seen people who have used the same material that i have used who have undertaken the same rigors that i have undertaken people who underwent the same processes that i underwent at some points in my life and the results were totally different totally different you know so i know for a fact that there are some parts of parts of what i have done that i can't only attribute to uh, maybe you could call it some a, a divine perspective i don't know divine is heavy a word but that is simply what it is i may not like to say it but that hey that just that's just what it is for me so for me the conclusion of the of the conversation would be again in team with the change africa podcast what is your vision for the continent i mean knowing that again i know that i don't know you well enough to say this but knowing that somehow I know you and the being of you as an individual. You have the burden and you have accepted the challenge of the burden. What do you envision for the world and more, more specifically for Africa? Through, I mean, it, your personal life. Like, what do you, what is all said and done, how do you see yourself impacting the continent more broadly, the world? Oh, okay. So, in terms of impact, one of the things I am very certain I would do is that I would teach. And I do not just mean classroom teaching. I want to make people understand that the intellect is also very sexy. You know, I want to make people understand that there is no shame in being an intellectual. No matter how much society brands intellectuals as some boring people who just go about reading books, that's so untrue. Is completely far from the truth. I want people to understand that you can integrate high-level intellectualism into your everyday life and be a well-adjusted individual in all senses of the world. So I want to, I, I would contribute by teaching people, you know, by using every opportunity I can to teach people. Practically anything that is teachable, anything that we can discuss, I want to engage in meaningful discussions with people that would provoke insights and improve their perspectives and also sharpen man as well in the conversation 
I want to eventually, at the na, the later stages of my life, go into the academia and try to formulate a, a pattern that would be that would be sustainable, you know, in any capacity that I'm able to function in, to improve systems at least in Africa and make people understand that there are better ways, better methods to pass information to children and to adults who are pursuing, you know, whether they are O levels or tertiary institutions respectively. So that is how I think I can contribute to the development of Africa because I strongly believe that in order to change a people's mindset, you must go through education. There has been no other way that was sustainable. Not in, not in Britain, not in America, not in Europe in general. It has always been the case that intellectuals were revered, not only revered, they were utilized to bring about widespread perspective change, you know, to people who were in those societies for the benefit of the greater good. So yes, I think that would be my most long-serving means of uh, contributions. There will be other ways. I will support meaningful projects. God willing, I have enough money to support support as many projects by others because, I mean, you alone can't do it. Other people will come up with ideas that I love and I will be happy to join and support them. I mean, take, take, take for example, your, your podcast. I do not know the number of persons who will play this. You do not even know the number of persons who might come across this in the next, say, five, ten years. You have no idea. These are the little ways that will make changes by supporting the, uh, the the ideas of others, ideas that have the same underlying philosophies as ours, right? So that's in terms of support. We I see Africa, or what I what I what what do I think about Africa in the coming years? Well, that that strongly depends on the quality of leadership and education that we have because these are like the this for me are just the root causes of most of the pro- at least most of the problems that Africans are faced with. You know, because, and, and I don't really know how long it would take to get around that, but I, be, I strongly believe that if we can get those two things right, it's a, it's a very convenient starter. It's, it's a sustainable starter from where we can now take on further conversations on the development of the society. If we get good leadership right, we'll get infrastructure right, we'll get electricity right. If we get these things right, people can live comfortably. And if people can live comfortably, they can pursue things that are more noble things that are beyond themselves, things that are beyond survival. Because all of these things complicate the abilities of people to see the value of the things that we've been discussing so far because they are basically strug- they are basically struggling for survival. You understand? So I believe if we get those things right, in the coming years Africa should be able to, you know, be part of very useful conversations globally. It be a, it also become you know I mean a destination for people from other places across the world. I don't know how feasible this would be because of the 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 ability for Africa to just self perpetuate destructive leaders over time. But I really do hope. <laughs> I really do hope. I really do hope that things change at least from the leadership perspective. But since I since all I have for in terms of Africa is hope for me. I would just keep doing the little things that I can do within the within the little spaces that I find myself, hoping that in due course we'll be able to impact just enough people who would then form who would then form a meaningful society that can support good leadership and also uh, and apart from support volunteer the right leaders. Yeah, that's that's the word I was looking for. 
And that's brilliant. Uh, I mean, it, that hits close to home, especially the thing that you said about, you know, how you want to, I guess, impact people in, impact people's intellect. I've always said that if I would write a book that would be influential, and I said that the most influential book, the most important book I would write will have to be a book around thinking and teaching people the frameworks to use their intellect. I think I have not found a book that has done that yet good enough. And I think that that book needs to be written, but we have to write it together. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, Destiny, for, for, for agreeing to join me in the podcast. Oh, it's, it's been a wonderful pleasure. This has been such an interesting conversation. I'm always very happy. Always, always very happy to join conversations of this nature. And I really do hope that you know, your podcast goes far and wide because you are doing something very noble, very, very noble, very helpful. And trust me, you have no idea how many persons need these things. People are dying from the lack of inspiration. People are also dying from the lack of knowledge. And these are two compact things that podcasts of this nature are, are pushing out to people out there. So you are feeding a lot of people mentally. And it was, I mean, just a privilege that I'm part of the process. So thank you very much. Thank you, too. This has been the Change Africa podcast with Destiny Ogedekbe and... Destiny's life is a brilliant one that has a lot of facets to it. We unfortunately couldn't get into that, but the short story is he grew up from a very unlikely place and has fashioned himself. Um, perhaps something that most people, very little people have been able to achieve, have a resilience to commit to learning and excellence in the entirety of his endeavors um, and now finds himself at the prestigious Harvard Law School as an LLM candidate. And we hope to see what he achieves in the future to come. But I am very sure that he does something great for himself. So, Destiny, again, thank you very much.